We have at first glance uh, here in this passage one of the apparently more confronting things that Jesus had, somewhat difficult thing that Jesus had to say. But once we understand it and we see that, well, Jesus is even being more scandalous than we feared, and yet at the same time uh, comforting too. Uh, so let's get into it. We'll pray and we'll, we'll see what we got. A loving God, we want to thank you again for this time that we have, your people. We gather together. We begin by saying g'day to each other and then we sing praises. We, we express our love of you, our understanding of you, our joy of you in these songs and we, we make much of who you are. And now we gather around your word to again uh, make much of who you are by saying we, we cherish it and we love it and we want it to shape our lives. And we pray that as we get into this passage from Luke, uh, that we will hear your word to us in this passage this morning. May your Holy Spirit be at work here, uh, just confronting and comforting and shaping our hearts towards a life that is lived uh, in your glory and our deep joy. Well, on the 9th of May in 1845, two ships, uh, the HMS Erebus, and her sister ship, the HMS Terror, they had scary names because they used to be warships before they went on this. Erebus means uh, it's the mythical god of chaos and darkness. Uh, before they went on this little tour, they were warships. But they left England, sailing out of the river. Um, is it Thames? How do you pronounce that river? Thames. Why is it spelled with an A? It's not good for someone like me. Anyway, carrying 128 officers and men under the command of Sir John Franklin to navigate to see if they could find uh, a passageway through the fabled Northwest Passage up in the high Arctic above Canada. Uh, and then if they could get that done, they'd be able to connect the uh, Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans in a way that didn't mean you had to travel around uh, down under Africa and that. However, these two ships were last seen on 28th of July 1845 in Baffin Bay off the west coast of Greenland. And then they vanished without a trace ever to be seen again from European or English eyes. Now these ships were the cutting edge of Arctic exploration, having features like inbuilt central heating uh, that was piped off the, uh, the 25 horsepower locomotive steam engines that had been retrofitted into, the, into these ships. They had desalination plants that provided fresh water and they had reinforced hulls and the bows to protect them from the ice and all that kind of stuff that they were going to be travelling through. One historian described them as the space shuttles of their time. They were supplied, though, for this potentially three-year journey through the Arctic Circle there, with 12 to 13 days of extra coal. They also had enough canned food uh, for five years. However, based on some grossly underestimated um, estimations of the extreme conditions of their journey, rather than more coal, each ship had two tons of tobacco stored away. 7,560 litres of liquor, of, of, of whiskey and rum, a library of 1,200 books, a hand organ that played no less than 50 songs. They had china place settings for all the officers and the men, fancy cut wine goblets, and sterling silver cutlery. The cutlery was uh, Victorian design, uh, ornate, and it had the names, the initials, and the family crest of each 
sailor engraved into the handle. Yeah. This was to be a voyage of a lifetime, not to be deprived of all of life's fineries and pleasures. They were going to live their best lives as they headed off into the harshest environments on planet Earth. Missing from the inventory and the cargo of these ships were clothing and bedding designed for the harsh conditions of the Arctic Circle and perhaps a few more bricks of coal. Instead, only dress uniforms uh, for the sailors were considered appropriate. Like, you've got, to be, you've got to be dressed well when you're going to get eaten by a polar bear. There are eyewitness accounts uh, from the indigenous Inuit people of having observed uh, sailors abandoning their ice-entombed ships and hauling the content of these ships uh, with their fancy cutlery and some chocolate and some canned food in sledges across uh, King William's Island, seeking a Canadian trading post about 800 miles south of where they were. The sailors were exhibiting signs of scurvy and starvation, but having some nice fancy cutlery, were able to kind of chop each other up when they eventually resorted to cannibalism. All of which was confirmed with the discovery of the Erebus and the Terror in 2014 and 2016, along with various uh, sites and places of frozen sailors dressed in blue fine cloth uniforms, edged with silk braid and black dress coats, black silk neckerchief. There's also evidence there when they found the cans of the rushed process, like they rushed the process to can all this food in time to get the expedition away, that the lead lining, the seal in the cans had failed and and had leaked into the food. So the very food that they thought was sustaining them was actually poisoning them. Arctic explorer, Rear Admiral and Lieutenant Governor of Van Diemen's Land, Sir John Franklin, and all those under his command had perished because they had foolishly, ignorantly, underestimated the conditions of their voyage. Rather, these experienced sailors chose to imagine a bit more of a pleasure cruise, enjoying all the comforts of home. With poor and rushed preparation, they exchanged necessities for luxuries, and as Kent Hughes puts it, ignorance for death in our passage today jesus is warning would be and perhaps even experienced christians not to make the same ill-informed unprepared unexamined and ignorant commitments to following him there is nothing casual nothing superficial and nothing easy about following jesus but there will be nothing greater No greater adventure and nothing more rewarding than should you give your life to him. In his book, You Are What You Love, James Smith says this, Jesus is a teacher who doesn't just inform our intellect, but he forms our very loves. He he isn't content to simply deposit ideas into your mind. He is after nothing less than your wants, your loves, your longings when jesus captures a person's loves and longings that is their heart the rest of their life follows it's this exchange of desire this reprioriting of the disordered loves of our souls that jesus is going after today that jesus says a true disciple has in place 
But once again, Luke, our great historian, sets the scene for us in verse 25. After a rather uh, awkward dinner engagement, the, the first part of chapter 14, verses 1 to 24, is this awkward dinner engagement where the religious leaders set another failed trap for Jesus, resulting in some of Jesus' finest sort of satire that exposes the, the deep and blind self-righteousness of their hearts. Jesus is now back on the road again, his face set towards Jerusalem. And Luke describes it as something like the last hole of the tournament, of the golf tournament of Augusta. Great crowds of people are lining up to see the spectacle of Jesus as he makes his way down the last uh, fairway towards Jerusalem. All commentators agree that there's a real carnival vibe now uh, surrounding Jesus. His masterful way of confronting the issues with the religious establishment, the compassion that he has on people, his concern that he has for, for people, his miracles, his teaching. The atmosphere around Jesus is, is electric and people wanted more of it. They wanted more entertainment. They wanted to be a part of whatever Jesus was doing next, hoping that he could help them live their best lives in the harsh conditions of Roman occupation. However, Jesus was there to do something more than make people curious and entertain them. He's looking for more than just casual spectators. He's calling people to make actual commitments. He's recruiting people for a great undertaking of a new community. And not uninformed and superficial commitments but well-examined ones and prepared ones. We have to remember that this moment isn't just happening in a vacuum, but takes place with all that Luke has described so far in the 14 chapters that we've read, all the eyewitnesses and hard evidence accounts of Jesus, who is the Son of God. He's come to bring peace to our hearts. He's come to to come and, and restore all the disordered loves and sin and chaos through an undivided loyalty and love and commitment to him and a love of God and his goodness. So Jesus turns to this crowd and he says, If anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. This is the strict criteria of true discipleship. When it's in place, it will mean you will not be humiliated. You will not find yourself unprepared or ill-informed. You'll be able to go the distance of faith. A faith that has counted the cost begins with a total reordering of preferential affections described here in Jesus' hate speech. Even before we come to faith in Christ, Jesus calls us to count the true cost of of Christian discipleship, which demands us to love him more than anything else in the world and carry our crosses, our own crosses of our own uh, sacrificial love. Joseph Ernest Renan, when he he read this, he he wrote in his famous diatribe, just a 
spewing out hatred towards Christianity. He complains about Jesus here and he says, he is trampling underfoot everything that is human, blood and love of country, despising the healthy limits of man's nature, abolishing all natural ties. He's trying to work out what Jesus is saying. And for those of us that have been uh, staying attached to the unfolding narrative of Luke, it seems to be an unhinged moment where Jesus just goes rogue and tramples on everything that he and the whole entire corpus of scripture has to say about relationships and the ethic of love. After all, this is gentle Jesus, isn't it? Meek and mild. Jesus who only, like back in chapter 6 of Luke's gospel, probably 2020, um, summoned us to love our enemies. The one who Isaiah calls the Prince of Peace in Chapter 9 of his book. Jesus who promises the world that um, we're going to know the kind of followers he has by the love, the the particular kind of love that we have for, for each other, for our families, for those around us. And yet this Jesus is asking me to hate my wife and my children and my parents. Yet elsewhere, scripture commands me to love my wife. We read that very clearly in Ephesians. Love my children. Exodus, the Ten Commandments, we're to love our parents. What could our Savior possibly mean by this incendiary and seemingly contradictory ultimatum? Asks Jeff Robinson. He's a writer for the Gospel Coalition. And Jeff Robinson writes, we, we may be scandalized by the hate speech, but if we take a closer look at the surrounding context, the nutshell meaning of these distressing words, it is clear and concise as it is radical and revolutionary. Jesus is telling his followers, if you would be a Christian, that I must have it all. And that stumbling over Jesus' plain talk, like he has just been upfront, he is just being honest and open, he's preparing you. By stumbling over this plain talk of Jesus, we can miss the real scandal of the text that there will be rivals warring for the supremacy over the throne of your heart. But love for King Jesus must defeat every single one of them. The Christian life is not a set and forget kind of life. You don't just come to Christ and then just casually cruise on through. Every time something in your life tries to kind of come up and, and, and come in and take the place of where Jesus should be, Take the place of your affections for Jesus. An affection for Jesus should then just put it back in its place. When dealing with texts like this, it is important to understand that the Bible sometimes uses like absolute language. The absolute language of hatred to express uh, a comparative degree of affection. So it uses strong absolutes to describe the other side. An example of this is found in Genesis 29.30 where we first read that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. And then in the next verse, the scripture says that Jacob hated Leah. To hate in this sense is to have preferential affection. Now, I know you all watch Farmer Once or Wife, right? You watch that? You probably watch Bachelor. Yeah, I know you do. I had a friend that was The Bachelor once, so no, there's no judgment, there's no shame in that. Actually, don't watch this stupid show. <laughs> Old Farmer Joe has affection for 
two, I don't know, three women, these wannabe farm girls, but he has to choose one over the other. He chooses one over the other. He has preferential affection for one. He likes the other. But the one who misses out does not feel loved. They feel hated. To have preferential affection is to love one thing more than the other. So that when it comes down to having a choice, there is no doubt which uh, affection we choose. To hate, in this case, is to give second place and, if needed, to let uh, all else go. Which is what Jesus talks about at the end when he says you must renounce all things. Preferential love for Christ. It comes through taking the time to encounter Jesus. Like it's not uneducated. It's not made up. Encountering who he is. Encountering his claims. Examining and, and, and looking at the implications of the cross. Of a holy God dying to save and to bring to new life those who have treated him with contempt who have made preferential choices about him towards other things this is the striving toward the narrow door that we spoke about last week christianity is not a faith of the feeble-minded and the foolish and the unthinking it is a community of the reasoned and the restored god does not destroy our desires rather he he resurrects and renews them while while using them to renew everything else within us, bring us to new passions, new desires towards him. Love for Christ flowing out of his love for us is the true disciple's only ultimate loyalty. Here Jesus is taking our our deepest and dearest affections and says that he must mean more to us than anything else in the world. More to us than our jobs. More to us than our pleasures. More to us than our very lives. However dearly we hold. Jesus must uh, become more to us than our families. However much we love them and should love them. Jesus is informing us here to not make good things. Like families and jobs, marriage, ultimate things. Things through which we seek ultimate meaning and salvation. They're not built for that. They can only be fully loved and enjoyed when they're reprioritized in preferential affection to Jesus. Like Jesus is the only person who in loving him more makes you able to love others more. Why this works is because only Jesus can love fiercer then you can love him. Only Jesus can have a greater desire for you than you can have for him. So shaped and transformed by that relationship, you are free to engage in any other relationship and not, and not be enslaved by them. Not be uh, desolated when they fail. Not be completely paralyzed at their loss. Jesus is not demanding that you do something dehumanizing. He is not telling us to neglect our responsibilities that we have to our loved ones and to our families and to our friends. He is not trampling on what makes us human. He is preparing your faith to survive the very limits of our humanity. The disordered loves that are warring for supremacy over the throne of our hearts. But love for King Jesus must defeat every single one of them with this preferential affection that Jesus is describing here. 
So when I, as a husband and a father, would rather just, you know, sit around and, and have my family kind of orbit around me, meet my needs and my desires, my love for Christ, my preferential affection to serve him, will see me love and serve my wife, will see me love and serve my kids. And even if they throw that back in my face, which never happens, mate, I am not embittered because my motives are not chasing their love. My motives are Christ's love. Can can you see how that I'm not a slave in that scenario? Well, Jesus pairs with the demand to have preferential affection for him another confronting criteria of true discipleship, and that is to take up your cross. Anyone who does not cannot be a Christian, a follower of Jesus. Now, this is a phrase that we have managed to horrendously kind of dilute and diminish, uh, that Jesus could kindly barely recognize how we apply it sometimes today. Like taking up your cross... Uh, is not having a difficult mother-in-law. It is not uh, about some financial fix that you found yourself in. It's not even about medical diagnoses that afflict you. Not all burdens in life are crosses in the same sense that Jesus meant. Even before Jesus was crucified, every person hearing this criteria of discipleship would have been scandalized but no longer unprepared. Everyone would have recognized the cross as a symbol of rejection, humiliation, and excruciating pain. And that word excruciating actually means from the cross. It came from crucifixions. To see someone carrying a cross in the streets was to see a man going to die, to go and die one of the worst forms of death that the human mind had ever dreamt up. It's a common enough image that's related to traitors and uh, hardened criminals and slaves. But no one would have ever dreamt of applying this to Jesus. And yet, this is the very reason why Jesus moves towards Jerusalem, to give up any claim on his own life, to give up any claim of his right to his rights as creator of all things, have all things worship him as, as, as Sandy spoke about this morning and to die in the place of those who have actually committed treason against him his claim over their hearts he is pref- preferred to love us through substitutionary suffering and sacrifice by taking up his cross by being taken up on a cross cross-bearing that Jesus says will be the expectation of a disciple is the suffering uh, that we endure because of our preferential love for Jesus. Like he suffered because of his love for us, we suffer because of our love for him. It happens when things like it's the belittling and and the demeaning treatment that you get. Even the accusations of being a bad person. Uh, for receiving um, and, for, and for loving Jesus' sexual ethics, uh, for receiving and loving Jesus' view of marriage as a preference, as a, as a, as a pref- preferential choice to that celebrated and demanded by other progressive uh, sexual theorists. 
It's a love of Jesus to care for the poor at the expense of my own time, uh, my own money, my own resources. It's a love of the gospel of Christ as the only hope for the human soul over the relativized, uh, individually designed preference, the whole kind of you do you, bro, you whatever makes you happy kind of salvation theories that are out there at the moment. It's the suffering and, and the persecution that comes from, from, from loving that way of life over others. Like Jesus, rather than living our lives for ourselves, we lay down our lives for the lives of others, giving them our time, our help, our service, our sympathy, our charity. Jesus has given his life for us. Now we give our lives to serve him in sacrificial love. This is the taking up of your cross. This is how Jesus prepares you for a life of discipleship with two great paired criteria of, of preferential love for Christ and sacrificial love towards others. To not take these things into account before committing your life to Christ would be like desiring to build a tower, Jesus said, and disregarding any financial capacity to complete that project. It will lead to public humiliation. Or likewise, it would be like a king being invaded by a far superior force just foolishly rushing into battle without a second thought about the consequences Far better to make peace with a superior force than rage against it. In fact, here Jesus is also saying here to consider the cost of non-discipleship. Can we afford not to make peace with Jesus, a far superior force? In both of these parables, Jesus is inviting his listeners to see the spiritual analogy in a pattern of foolish behavior that they see in the world around them. People who start building projects without you know, appropriate funds and kings who run into battle foolishly. It's, e- it's very easy to start to build a tower. And it doesn't take too much to begin a war. And perhaps it's all too easy to set out with a desire to follow Jesus. But have you taken the time to count the cost to really understand where that desire is leading you? The cost of it. Jesus frames his first parable in the second person. Which of you, which of you is going to go and build a tower? Forcing us to put ourselves into the situation described. Giving us the exercise of counting the cost of what it takes to stay the journey. If you have a limit, if you've got some kind of financial ceiling, if you have a limit in your affections of Jesus, you're probably better off not starting. And just like opposing armies, in Jesus' parable, the call to discipleship is nothing to be trifled with. It's not something to be entered into lightly. Being a disciple will cost you everything. You, you need to be prepared for that reality, Jesus is saying. Otherwise, what's going to happen? What's going to happen when you are confronted with Jesus' demands to forego sexual immorality? What will happen um, when you encounter Jesus' demands uh, to give with radical generosity, to love the church, to love your brothers and sisters unconditionally, to love your enemy? What will prevent unprepared disciples 
from descending into bitterness when God's plan for their lives now involves terminal cancer. Or I don't know, the death of an unsaved relative, like a parent. Only total commitment of the heart to preferential love of Jesus holds your faith in place. Jesus' approach to church growth is not exactly current currency. It may mean fewer people start down the path of discipleship, but no fewer people will make it all the way to the end. It seems Jesus is saying he would rather you not follow him than start out following him on your own terms, on your own agendas. Well, Jesus finishes with this rather gripping little metaphor, uh, epigram, that brings the whole lesson together. And again, it's framed in the negative of, you cannot be his disciple without this. So therefore, if any one of you does not renounce all that he has, you cannot be my disciple. It's the third statement of complete exclusion. It builds on hating families and carrying our cross. Disciples must be prepared to renounce everything. Joseph Fitzmaier, in his foundation commentary on Luke, translates Jesus' statement here. Every one of you who does not say goodbye, who does not kind of let go to everything that they have, cannot be my disciple. This is not a call to a fire sale of all your assets, an abandoning of all relationships, but rather it's another way of saying that all of these areas of our life must become assets available to the service of following Jesus. None of them should keep you from following Jesus and the way he demands to be followed. This is Jesus saying, renounce a way of life that is secured in the work of your own hands and your own desires and begin one that is uh, secured in, in my desires and the work of my hands. It's as comforting as it is confronting because the disciple who prepares their heart the way Jesus tells us to prepare our hearts is overwhelmingly ready unshakably confident and capable of the joyfully living for Christ in a hostile and unpredictable environment. As Jim Elliot said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Unless our highest affection, unless Jesus is our highest affection, we cannot be his disciples. Not successful ones anyway. A true disciple is someone who understands the sacrifice but believes the sacrifice is worth the reward and the relationship of following Jesus. We do not enter into discipleship with our eyes kind of wide open, knowing the cost but prizing what we gain more. There is every chance we will give up at some point. We will get discouraged. We will be like the person who set out to build a tower before realizing they just didn't have the game plan to finish. You don't have to know everything there is to know about Jesus. But you do have to know, you do have to be persuaded, have your heart convinced that Jesus is greater and better than anything 
you will ever know. And be prepared for the life that he is calling you to. Let's pray. Loving God, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you that you ask us not to be foolishly, uh, feeble-minded, unprepared people. But Christians are to be the most reasoned, the most thought out, uh, the most intellectual people on the planet. To have well considered all of your claims. And in that finding, finding in there something so beautiful, something so attractive, something so compelling of a God who loves uh, people who are treasonous towards him. And he would do whatever it takes to bring us into a life with him. And in that, we, we, our hearts are shaped with an affection for you. Our, plan, our prayer is that more and more we would discover uh, an affection for you. Would you warm our hearts with affection for you? If they are kind of cold and dim, would you just be real to us and talk to us through your word, through your scripture, through sermons, through conversations with other Christians, Bible study groups, whatever space we find ourselves in to know more and to learn more about you. Would you warm our hearts with affection for you? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.